What do I mean by that? If you remember, throughout much of Jesus' ministry, he prophesied and he told about his death, his coming death, and his coming resurrection. And the disciples still did not get it. They did not fully understand what he was trying to say, did they? It was only after he died and rose again that they realized what his words meant. At the time of Jesus' birth, the Jewish scribes, the elite leaders, with all the knowledge that they had of Scripture, they incorrectly interpreted Scriptures versus the reality of what was taking place when Jesus was born. Another example that we see, that the Jews knew of the Messiah. They knew of all the Old Testament passages of the Messiah, but they did not and they do not today believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Why? Because they have created their own way of thinking what the Messiah is and who the Messiah is and what he would do and what he would bring. And they misinterpreted the Scriptures by not realizing that Jesus truly is the Messiah. You see, if we're not careful, it's easy to misinterpret. In our passage today, in Matthew chapter 24, in the the verses that I'm going to be going through with you today, there are some in churches and Christianity that believe these verses have already taken place. There are some that believe that these are verses that have yet to take place. There are some that they could be a combination which I am of that nature, that things that have already taken place and could be yet some foreshadowing of things to come. I believe prophecies can have dual applications. In our passage today, I believe, I believe that our passage today refers to events that would happen in the first century. However, I also believe that there can be foreshadowings there can be foreshadowing of events that might happen long past the first century, even things that pertain to us today. So, I say all that to say this. I think we would do well to keep in mind that no one person or no one church has every single answer to every single prophetic scripture out there. And I humbly admit that I don't. Even within the church of God, heaven forbid I say this, but even within the church of God, there are variances of opinion when it comes to prophecies. However, let me end with this. This section, I'm not done. Let me end with this section. I do believe with proper biblical interpretation techniques, keeping Scripture within its proper context, along with common sense and the spirit of the living God, all those things combined, he can lead us into truth. Amen? He can lead us into truth. So with those principles in mind, let's dig. So are you ready? Let's dig into Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 14 this morning. Verses 1 through 14. Hopefully these pop up. Hey, there you go. Not real big. We did it, but uh, we'll try and get those larger next week. So... You might not be able to see that, so just listen to me or follow your word. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Keep that in mind. That's kind of a key verse. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. 
Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because the lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then, and then the end will come. Some of you may be saying, wow. What on earth is that saying? I'm going to give you the interpretation that I believe is true, as well as realize that there can be foreshadowings well past the first century. In this opening scene, Jesus and the twelve, they, they find themselves in the temple area, around the temple. And it's implied here, if you kind of peer in between the lines here, it's implied that the twelve disciples, they seem rather proud of their temple, their Jewish symbol of power, and they wanted to know if Jesus indeed was impressed as well. I'm going to build that a little bit. At the time, the temple of the Jews, it sat on what was called the Temple Mount the Mount of Jerusalem. Today, this mount is considered to be extremely holy and sacred to the Christians, the Jews, and the Muslims. To the Muslims, it's considered to be the spot where the prophet Muhammad was transported into heaven, a very sacred and holy spot to the Muslims. And because of that event, they have built a shrine to signify and celebrate that event. That is the shrine that is currently there. That is called the Dome of the Rock. That is a Muslim building meant to commemorate the spot where Muhammad was transported into heaven. This is also a very holy spot to the Jews. It is the very spot where it is believed that Abraham brought Isaac to be sacrificed. It is the spot where David first dedicated the city of Jerusalem. And it is also the site of the very first temple that King Solomon built in 957 B.C. What's interesting is the Dome of the Rock that you see on the screen is precisely over the spot where the Jews' temple used to be, where the Holy of Holies. And to this day, there is major wars and trying to fight to get that back. The Jews are desperate to get that spot back so they can rebuild the temple again. They want to restart the old sacrificial system again. 
And we know how the Muslims feel about their religion as well. For the Jews in that day, and some of what I'm going to give you today is more of a historical journey. Uh, Those of you who like some of that information, you, you might enjoy that. But just to try and give you an idea of what's happening in our passage today. For the Jews then and today, and this is a picture of what the temple may have looked like. For the Jews then and today, the temple in Jerusalem, it was the epicenter of Jewish life. Their daily sacrificial system that took place there. The Jews were to take several yearly annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem and the temple. The inner sanctuary there that you see, the the, the taller portion there in the middle, that, that was the inner sanctuary. It was called the Holy of holies. It was where the Ark of the Covenant was located. It was also the place where the Levitical priest, many of you know this, but it was also the, the place where once a year the priest would go and, and present sacrifices. It was the sacrifice of atonement on behalf of all the people. He represented the entire Jewish nation. He would go into that inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, to present the sacrifice of atonement and pray that God would accept it. And bless the people. You see, to the Jews, the temple was not just larger than life. It was their life. A little bit of historical background here. King Solomon built the first temple around 957 B.C. But King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it and ransacked it in 586 B.C. A number of attempts were made to rebuild the temple, but that never reached its original prominence uh, until King Herod the Great rebuilt it around 20 B.C. But King Herod did not rebuild the temple to honor God. King Herod built the temple to honor Herod. Herod was what you would call an egomaniac. (laughs) You see, in that day, in that area... It was very popular for the nations to build temples to their gods. In Greece, they built temples to honor Artemis and Apollo and Zeus and Athena, Aphrodite and Poseidon. And Herod the Great wanted in on the deal. He was known as one of the greatest builders of Judean landscape of the time, building huge, massive edifices. And he wanted to have the biggest and the best, the grandest, the most opulent of all the temples. And when he rebuilt the Jewish temple in 20 B.C., it was to stand alone. It was to be the temple of all temples. Dedicated to the God of the Hebrews, the God of all gods, the maker of heaven and earth. Its massiveness and grandeur was one of a kind, and King Herod knew it all point back to his own hands. He built it with wrong intentions. Now let me just give you a little bit more of an idea of what we're dealing with here. I want you to know why the Jews, or why the, the Jews in the twelve that day were so proud of their temple. The temple was built with Marble plated gold. 
their marble stones and it had gold. And, and it was said that on a sunny day, and these are reports of historians like Josephus, it is said that on a sunny day you could not look at the temple because it would practically blind you. There were multiple pillars that surrounded the temple area and in the temple plaza. Now, now try and, and picture this with me. Each pillar was cut from one single block of marble. The pillars alone stood over 37 feet tall. Now, just to give you an idea, Jay, Kevin, and Lloyd, come here. Just to give you an idea of the massiveness, I want you guys to link arms together, or just try and go like this, okay? Go like this and just barely touch your fingertips, okay? Make a circle. Make a circle. All right, do that. But go as far as you can. Go out, go out, go out. Okay. That is the diameter of just one of the pillars. That tells you how big one of the pillars of the temple were. Could you guys just stand there for the rest of the message just like that? You look really good. Thank you. All right, thank you guys. I just wanted to give you an idea. There were like over 160 of these temples surrounding, or pillars surrounding the temple. Massive, massive architecture. Some of the, I don't know if you can, yeah, you can see that. That's the, the, the wailing wall in Jerusalem where the Jews still go. There are still portions that, that are up, but uh, you, you can see a sense of the stones. Can you see the foundational stones and how big they are? There are reports that foundational angle stones were as large as 20 to 40 feet in length. That's, uh, holy smoke, that's like from this pew down to that pew, maybe even longer. 20 to 40 feet in length for just one stone. Stones that weighed uh, anywhere from 100 to 200 tons. There was one stone found that was over 400 tons. How they ever cut those stones and transported them today is still an engineering mystery, an engineering marvel. They have no idea how they did it. The height of the walls surrounding the temple was equivalent to a 20-story building. Now, now, now get this. This is the size. You can kind of see that. That's a panoramic. That's a step-back picture of the temple area and the plaza. That very well could have been what it looked like when King Solomon first built it. But the plaza there, the, the area surrounding it was larger than was about the size of six football fields put together. That's how massive this place was. This was the glory of the Jewish nation. It says that you could fit one million people in that plaza right there. When they would come and make their annual pilgrimages, journeys to the country... <laughs> pilgrimages. You try and say that five times real fast. That's where they would go. There would be over a million Jews that would come and make their sacrifices to the Lord. Can you get an idea? This was the area that day where Jesus and the twelve were. And can you kind of see why the, the twelve disciples looked at Jesus and they were impressed and they wanted to know, aren't you impressed as well? What about us? I don't know about the closest thing for you and I. Go over to Washington, D.C. Go over to the Capitol building. It's uh, over two and a half football fields wide. The Washington Monument is 555 feet tall. Massive buildings over there. Mount Rushmore. 
I don't know, wherever your mind goes to a massive scale. But this was their temple. This was an engineering marvel of the day. And as the twelve were standing there that day in the temple with Jesus, and I believe their mouths were open in awe. You, know, you see, these, these were men, they were Galileans. They were men of the country. They were men who were farmers. These were fishermen. They didn't get to the city very much. And so whenever they got a chance to go into Jerusalem and see the temple, they were in awe. And here they are in the midst of this incredible massive structure. And they wanted to know Jesus. Tell me, you're impressed with all this. And it's in this setting that Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another, that stone that shall not be thrown down. No doubt that the twelve had to be in shock. As Jesus walked away and they made their way to the Mount of Olives, I'm sure they were looking at each other, saying to each other, what did he just say? Did he just say there's not going to be one stone that's going to be left upon another here? No, no, no. We, we, we got that wrong. When they finally reached the, the Mount of Olives, the twelve could not contain themselves anymore. And they had to know what was behind his statement. For you see, they could not comprehend a time when their beloved temple would be destroyed. There's no way. They must have thought that the only way something like this could happen was when the Messiah, which they believed in, was when the Messiah, whom they believed to be Jesus, was. When the Messiah would return and conquer the Roman Empire and conquer all the nations of the world and set up his earthly kingdom, reestablish world dominance. That's what they were waiting for. That's what they were looking for. Those in that group, the 12 disciples, they were those that wanted Jesus to take it. We know what you can do. You have miracle working power. We believe that you are God's son. You are the Messiah. Do it. Take it. It's yours for the taking. What's interesting is what they said would take place. They went to Jesus and they said in verse 3, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, please, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You see, I was reading some information about the Messiah and I was reading an article and it was written by a Jew And the Jew was giving their description of the Messiah. And they believe that there are Old Testament passages that reference this. But what they believe is that, and this is their words, what they believe is that their Messiah would come at the end of the age. Interesting, isn't it? And we can see how the Jews, that was taught, that was drilled into the Jews of that day. Or else why would they have said, end of the end of the age? Stay with me here. Stay with me. They must have thought that the only way these stones could be toppled over would be when the Messiah comes, and that's you, Jesus. This was the only way something like this could take place at the end of the age when time is no more. 
And this was their mindset as they asked that question. But what Jesus is getting ready to say will not only answer events surrounding the temple, but he will indeed talk about his final return and when the end of the age will come. I'm just going to stop here real quick. Already we can see a lesson. Now, I believe that what Jesus is describing is an event that we'll go into in just a second, an event that took place in just a few years after that. But we can see a foreshadowing, some lessons that we can learn. What's the first lesson that we can learn here? Don't put your stock in things made with human hands. Amen? Don't put your stock in things made with human hands. That is, in essence, what Jesus was telling the disciples. But the Jews and the twelve did exactly that. Their life was more wrapped up in the physical temple than it was the God who was to be worshipped in the temple. Don't miss that. Jesus told, if you remember, he told the Samaritan woman on Mount Gerizim, which they believe that's the place that where God should be worshipped, and the Samaritans. And Jesus told the Samaritan woman, a day is coming when you and all true believers will neither worship God on this mountain or in the Jerusalem, for true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. How does this apply to us today? Let me just give a little... Well, I'll let you decide however it comes across. But as Bars Mill, we are indeed blessed by what God has given us. Amen? There's no doubt that we are blessed. But listen, God does not care where we worship. He only cares who we worship. He doesn't care where we worship. He only cares who we worship. The building that we are sitting in is just that. It's just a building made with carpet, wood, and plywood, and brick, stone. And if the Lord tarries, this building too will crumble someday. The building is not the temple where God resides. You and I are the temple of God. Amen? You and I are the temple, and our hearts is where God resides. I remember about a year, year and a half half ago, Don Weber gave me a video, I believe Brian put together, of how this current facility was built and put together. It was quite an amazing video. And I remember seeing a gathering just over the hill. I remember seeing a group of people that... um, I believe it was a time of dedication on the ground to where the first shovel would be put in the ground. How many of you were there that day? Let me see your hands. You remember that day, thank you. You remember that day. Let me remind you that those who were in the field that day, you were the church. Yes? You were the church. The ones that marched up from that church over the hill, was it on Easter morning? Was that on Easter morning? Those of you who marched up from that little church into this church, you were the church. That building down there was not the church. This building here is not the church. You and I are the church. 
I do not want to overlook all the faith and all the blood, sweat, and tears that went into building this building. Actually, uh, get that video or just sit down with Dean sometime, and Dean will tell you story after story about how God showed up in that time and just answered miracle after miracle, and there's no doubt that God was involved in the building of this facility. But I only point all this out to emphasize that we must not worship the building, but the one true God who provided the building. Yes, we need to be good stewards of this physical building, but may we be more. Now listen to me, and I'm going to move on. I'm going to get off this. We need to be good stewards of the building. But may we be more concerned about the hearts and the lives of those who come through this door. May we use this facility in any and every way to reach the hearts and lives of people for Jesus. May our main focus May our main focus never be preserving what we have, but multiplying the souls of mankind with it. I praise God for this place, but it's just a building. I praise God more for you, because you're the church. Don't ever forget that. I need to hasten here. I need to hurry. Let me break down this passage for you. Some of you are thinking, okay, Pastor, what, what is all this trying to say? So what was Jesus talking about in verses 1 through 14? As I said at the start, I believe that the first part of this chapter, Jesus, the first part of the chapter, Jesus is referring to an event that was soon to take place. It was going to take place in their lifetime of the disciples. What is that event? That event, I believe, is to be the fall of Jerusalem, which took place in 70 A.D. The fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. You see, in response to a Jewish uprising four years earlier in which the Jews took control of the city. We're going to talk about this more. We're going to develop this later down the road. But in response to an uprising by the Jews four years earlier, the Romans attacked Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And in the crosshairs of the Roman army was the beloved temple. And what was considered impossible to the twelve that day, as they were standing in the courts that day, what was considered impossible to them some 40 years earlier became possible as the Romans destroyed the temple. Not one stone was left in its place and the entire temple was burned to the ground. This is the event I believe Jesus was prophesying about in verses 1 through 14. Not fully understanding what would take place, the twelve asked when all of this would take place. And in verses 5 through 14, Jesus begins to tell them what things will take place leading up to this catastrophic event. And I just want to give you an idea that when Jesus speaks, it's truth. And then I'm going to wind this down to a closing point. Verse number 5, let's read it again. If you have your word, verse number 5, and I'll try and get through this quickly. So Jesus is responding to their question. And he said, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. After Jesus ascended into heaven, the world became a very tumultuous place. The church was very young, and there were several attempts made by self-seeking people to lead people astray. 
All you have to do is just look through the, the New Testament scriptures and past the Gospels, and you'll see the Apostle Paul and, and the disciples earnestly warning the young church, do not be deceived. There's false teachers out there. There are false teachings. There are false doctrines. There are little foxes in your midst. Please be careful. Don't be deceived. You see, Jesus knew what was going to take place after he left. In 52 A.D., an Egyptian man claiming to be the Messiah led 30,000 people to the Mount of Olives claiming that he would destroy the temple, trying to fulfill the words of Jesus. Jesus knew this. He knew that there would be false messiahs. He claimed to be the Messiah, wasn't, led 30,000 people away, and the Roman army quickly dispersed them. See if I can say these names. Simon of Perea, A. Thronges, Menahim ben Judah, Vespasian. These were all men who in the first century A.D. after Jesus left, these are all men who proclaimed themselves to be Messiah. In the first century. So you can see that this first verse Jesus knew would be fulfilled not long after he left. Let's look at the next verse, verse number 6. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Wars and rumors of wars. Now for you and I, wars and rumors of wars is no big deal, is it? It's the society and the culture that we live in. But for those in that day, there were not too many wars taking place. Now, your mind may go back to that time and think, well, they were very... Uh, very uh, barbaric in their treatment and just how that, yeah, they were. But in that time, there were not many wars taking place. This would have been a surprise to the people of that day. Why is that? The Romans had such a grip on the area. The Romans had such a tight grip on, the, on that hemisphere of the world that no one dared fight with them. Matter of fact, our history books refer to this period of time. You ever heard of that in history? Remember that, the Pax Romana? The Pax Romana, that is a time uh, in the first and the second century of peace. That Pax Romana means peace. The Romans brought peace to the area. And this was, this was the atmosphere that Jesus and the disciples were in that day. Research shows that only one major war early in the century took place. That was when the Romans overtook Britain. So what was Jesus referring to? What he is referring to is that in the years leading up to the the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., the Jews took control of Jerusalem in 66 A.D. And from there, wars and rumors and skirmishes and outbreaks and battles and fights began to take place in greater number until the siege of 70 A.D. You see, these were rumors that Jesus knew would take place. Verse 7. Sorry that it's so small. You'll just have to take my word for it or read it. All right. Verse 7. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. What does that mean? Famines and pestilences and earthquakes. How does this relate to that period of time? Josephus. Roman and Jewish 
historian wrote about a natural disaster and a famine that took place after Jesus ascended. One of the most horrendous famines to overtake the land, to where he writes in his writings, now this is hard to hear, but this is a true story. He's a historian. He said that the famine was so bad that mothers, after their babies died, would eat their babies. It's hard to hear, isn't it? A horrendous time, though. Jesus knew what was going to be coming in the future. Famines were taking place in the time. Pestilences. What are pestilences? Those are diseases. Those are plagues. The Greek anatomist Rufus of Ephesus, he wrote of a first century plague in Libya, Egypt, and Syria after Christ ascended. He wrote that this this plague was so bad it affected people with fever and great pain and great delirium. said that the sores would break out behind people's elbows and behind people's knees. And the death toll was horrific. Diseases and plagues began to affect the land. Earthquakes. Historian Tacitus wrote in 51 AD of a massive earthquake in his region, and these are his words, quote, This year witnessed many prodigies, signs, and omens, included repeated earthquakes. Josephus accounts that an earthquake in Judea was such a magnitude in Judea, was such a magnitude that, quote, the constitution of the universe was confounded for the destruction of men. Other historians wrote extensively about the earthquakes of the first century. I'm moving on, verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. Here is a prophecy that I believe spans the years of time. But here's also a prophecy that would have been hard for the the disciples to wrap their minds around. See, at the time of Jesus, it was the Pax Romana. There was peace. The, The Romans allowed you to worship your God of your religion. Just don't cause any trouble. You know, we, we will allow whoever you are, whatever you are, to come into our borders and to come into our reign, but don't cause problems. Just, just pay taxes to Caesar and you will be fine. So the Romans did not mess with the Jews too much. They were able to do pretty much what they wanted. However, history tells us that fierce and intense persecution began to take place in the decades following Jesus. And it only worsened throughout the first century. Here's another prophecy that I believe goes past the first century, persecution. Jesus knew that persecution would take place all down through history and even to today. But for our purpose of the first century, just look at the 11 disciples. Judas killed himself. But all but one disciple died a martyr's death. John was exiled to the island of Patmos. But the rest of the disciples all died a martyr's death. Emperor Nero began intense persecution around 64 AD. And all we have to do is look to our own scriptures. You don't have to turn there. But in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35, says this about the persecution of the believers that was to come, that took place. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had a trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. 
They were sown and they were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. You see, as I believe, a strong argument can be made that everything that Jesus predicted in this passage in regards to the events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem took place just as he said. Last passage, verses 10 through 13. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he, here we go, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. He who endures to the end shall be saved. I believe Jesus speaking directly to the believer and to the young church of that day. Jesus encourages them to hang on until the end. Don't give up. Keep the faith. You see, in the first century, the church was growing at a rapid pace all over the country. But with great growth comes great deception and false teachings and false teachers. We've already talked about that. Knowing this in advance, knowing what was getting ready to come in just a few years, Jesus tells his children, don't be deceived. Stay true until the end. Follow me, the true Messiah. Bars Mill Church of God, this prophecy is still true for us today. Amen. It is still true for us today. We are living in an ever-changing world and culture. We are living in a Sodom and Gomorrah atmosphere, just a cesspool of sin and filth, crazy teachings and philosophies and doctrines out there, we too must not be deceived. Listen, there are many of you and there are many that were thrilled with what happened this past Tuesday, what happened with our elections and what happened in our Congress. And how it's going to affect our country's landscape. But I'm telling you that we cannot put our hope in politicians or the president. Our country will not turn around because a a particular political party is now in charge. The only hope for our country is when we as a people put God back in position. So when we put God back in charge, yes, we need to pray for our leaders. Yes, we need to pray for our president. Yes, we need to vote for those with godly Judeo-Christian principles and morals. Yes, we need to pray for them. We need to pray that they will see what they need to do. If not, then put godly people in its place. But listen, I'm telling you, Jesus is saying, as he said before, don't put your hope in things made by human hands. He's saying today, don't look to anyone or anything else. Look to me, look to me, the one true God. Look to my word, the one true God. What does all this mean for us? 
While I believe Jesus was speaking of events leading up to the fall of Jerusalem, I'm going to wind this down. I believe that he was specific, uh, speaking to the events surrounding the fall of Jerusalem. And we're going to explore more of this next week. We can pick out truths for us today. See, Jesus wanted those of his day to be ready for the events to come. But more importantly, he said these words so that all those who claim him as Lord and Savior, not just those that day, but those of you that are here, I'm talking to you, he's talking to you, he's talking to me. He's talking to all of us. He said these words, they're in red letters. Why? So that we will not put our trust in things made with human hands. That we will not fall prey to false teachings and false doctrines. That we would not lose the faith. Endure until the end. What end am I talking to? It's the end of when he comes back or whenever he calls us home in this life. Endure. Some of you came this morning discouraged. You're going through a hardship. You're going through a trial. You're tempted to do things on your own. You're tempted to take matters into your own hands. You believe you know what God's telling you to do, but you don't want to do that. You don't want to wait. God is saying, endure, child. Endure until the end. Follow me. Don't be deceived. I heard, uh, in closing, I heard of a uh, story. Some of you may have heard this on the news, uh, an incredible story. There was a man who was delivering a truck of building supplies and materials to a, a, a large city to where they were building a skyscraper. I don't know what city it was. It may have been Chicago or something like that. And it was like a 40, 50, 60 story building. And... Um, this man was delivering a truck of materials, and he pulled up beside the, the skyscraper, and he got out. And just as he got out, about 40 or 50 floors up of this building that they were building, this construction worker dropped his tape measure, accidentally dropped it, just a little tape measure. And 40 or 50 stories down, what you know, that thing hit this man squarely on the head, killed him. Incredible. What's this message have to do with us today? Pastor, it's about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. No. It's about this. Are you ready? Because if we can look at Jesus' words in 1 through 14 and then going on into verse 26, if we can look at Jesus' words about what was getting ready to happen, a horrific event that we'll go into detail more later, was trying to warn those people, if his prophecies about that time came true, then after this he goes into his end of time when he does come back. If he is coming back, then he is coming back. We have got to be ready. Are you ready? We're one tape measure away from meeting our maker. And if there's something in your life today, something that you know is not right with God, would you bow your heads with me? We're going to close this up. Something that's not right in your heart with God. God, help us. You know that there's some obstruction in your way. Mandy, just come on up. I'll just have you. I'll play this and you can lead it.
what Jesus said is true. And Jesus is telling us that one day, far past 70 A.D., I will split the eastern skies and I will come back for a church without spot or wrinkle. I am coming back for my people, for my bride, for my church. Are you ready? If there's anything in your life that you know you're not ready, there's some kind of issue in your life to where you know you've got to get worked out with God or with someone else, please, please, please. Make sure that you're ready. Father God, we thank you. Lord, I love your word. Man, when you unfold it to us like that, God, it makes us realize, man, this is serious business. Father, I thank you that you want us to be about your business, our Father's business. Lord, your words are true. We thank you for that. Lord, these are words of warning Words to make us look at our own souls and our own hearts and realize we've got to be ready at all times. God, we honored our nation's military today. We honored our military in Gale, and Lord, our military has to be ready at all moments. At a moment's notice, when the word comes, they've got to be ready. God, we want to be the same. We as a church, we want to be ready whenever you call. Whatever you tell us to do here in this life, Lord, we want to be ready so that we're ready to meet you, Father. Lord, if there's anyone here that is not ready, I pray that as we sing just a few lines of this song, they would get ready. They would do what you want them to do, Father. Father God, we love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? We're just going to sing a couple lines of this song. I'm not going to drag this out. Open our eyes, Lord. Open our eyes. Help us to see what he wants us to see this morning. Just sing with me. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. To reach out and touch him. To reach out and touch him.